wonder if you are familiar with the term mission drift. Something that we use to describe what happens to an organization when it drifts off of its original task. It's one of those things that if you examine an individual case of mission drift and try to determine what happened, you'll often find it's a result of a, a bunch of tiny things that happened or, or, or several, several influences operating and over time, it just kind of makes the thing drift away, you know? Think about the slow, the slow way uh, the wind and the current might push a ship off of its course. Uh, the thing that I'm most familiar with, I guess, from reading history would be the, the mission drift that happened to Protestant churches in the United States in the early 20th century. These would be your kind of mainline churches, like Presbyterian and Episcopalian. They drifted off course, such that by the early 20th century, they were no longer really preaching the gospel at all. They had turned into organizations for, for social work, for relieving poverty and feeding the hungry and those kind of things. And if you look at why that happened, you'll see, well, they began to have doubts about the inerrancy of the word and the, the supernatural work of God. And, and there was the force of urbanization that people came to move to cities. And there was a desire to have something for all these people to do and to make sure that the young men were, were provided for. And so slowly, mission drift happens. We see there's good things to be done, and, and we can do them, and the gospel seems kind of out of fashion, and so we'll, we'll do those things instead. Mission drift can happen on these, in these big organizations like large denominations, but we can also find that mission drift could happen in an individual's life, where we, we drift away from what we know to be our purpose or calling. A spouse drifts away from their husband or wife. We as Christians drift away from Christ. And again, we might ask, well, how does that happen? How can it be that someone who's been saved starts to wander from Christ? The passage we're going to look at today, Galatians chapter 3, was a passage that was written to people who were drifting, or at least in grave danger of drifting. It's a passage that's meant to wake them up and arrest them and say, you started off so well, where are you going now? Are you so foolish as to think that there's some other way than the gospel that saved you? Here we don't get a, an anatomy or a, a postmortem on the Galatians mission drift, but it's clear that it's happened. It's clear that now is the time for Paul to try to, to dismantle the false gospel they're believing and call them back to Christ, their first love. If you think about where we are in the book, we've covered chapters 1 and 2, where Paul spent a lot of time at first laying out his credentials as an apostle. He was trying to clear the decks in a way and saying, I didn't receive the gospel from any man, but from God alone. And then at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, Paul zeroes in on the central issue between the gospel that he's preached and the false gospel. He said that to claim Christ as your Savior is to admit that your good works can't save you. He said, we all know that no one's justified by works. We all know that no one's declared righteous in God's eyes based on what they do. We know we can only be forgiven by Christ, faith in Jesus' work. It's only the loving sacrifice of the Son of God that transforms sinners into children of God. 
So at the end of chapter 2, it's like Paul has cleared all the distractions away. He's laid the, the crucial issue out on the table, and he can be somewhat sure now that he and his readers were all looking at the same thing. Justification by faith alone. That is the central issue. Last week, we saw that justification is a, a twin declaration. So at one time, God declares the sinner who trusts in Christ as forgiven, not guilty. Let's say that's kind of looking at it negatively. Forgiven of what you've done, you're not guilty anymore. And that's because of Christ's sacrifice, Christ's atoning work. But secondly, it also involves the declaration of being positively righteous in God's eyes. And that's based on the perfect obedience of Christ. We are counted righteous. Christ's righteousness is counted to us. So we're justified not based on any work we've done. We're justified based on Christ's sacrifice and his righteousness. And so again, that issue now is front and center. We're all looking at the same thing. And now Paul's going to kind of hammer it home to his readers. And he's going to begin in our passage by showing his readers what's at stake if we get this message wrong. He says the true gospel brings blessing, but if we abandon the gospel, if we believe in a distorted false gospel, we're under God's curse. What's at stake is salvation and damnation, life and death. We will either live before God by faith, or we will die eternally under the curse of the law. He tells the Galatians, by faith in the gospel, you received God's Holy Spirit. You saw God's miraculous works. You were adopted into the family of God. By faith, you were redeemed through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. The law didn't bring those changes. Christ's work did. And so Paul is pleading with them, don't abandon the gospel, the only message that brings life. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read the text. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, you can turn to page 973. And we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Listen to God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith either. Or the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So Paul begins his plea in verses 1 through 5 with a, a series of rhetorical questions. And so in that spirit, our sermon points are going to be organized with three questions. How did God save you? What defines God's family? And how did you escape judgment? By answering these questions, Paul wants to convince us not to be foolish. He wants to convince us not to abandon the gospel that saved us. So these three questions again. How did God save you? What defines God's family? And how did you escape God's judgment? Let's look at this first question. How did God save you? Again, closely tied to it is, if we've been saved by God, why would we abandon that salvation? He begins this chapter with harsh words and a strange question. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? When I first read through the passage, I kind of skipped by that first question. I thought, well, that's kind of preliminary and introductory, getting things started. But then a commentator noted this word bewitched is kind of a strange thing to say. Right? We don't believe in witchcraft, right? Uh, the commentator Doug Moo says that to bewitch means to exert an evil influence through the eye. So in other words, Paul's suggesting here that some terrible evil has deceived the Galatians, almost as if a, a, spell, a spell has been cast preventing them from seeing clearly. Their eyes are now, now unable to see Christ, who Paul says was so clearly portrayed before them. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul preached the gospel to them. He, he publicly portrayed Jesus so clearly to them. It was as if they had seen it themselves. But now their vision has become clouded. They've become bewitched. When the Galatians became Christians, it was because Paul had so clearly and vividly preached to them and portrayed Christ crucified for sins. And with the eyes of faith, they saw Jesus crucified for them. They believed and received forgiveness. Paul uses Christ crucified as a kind of shorthand for the gospel here. Well, certainly he preached the whole gospel. He told them about the incarnation and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. But this shorthand is helpful for showing us that the center of the gospel is Christ's death in the place of sinners. There's no hope for sinners without this work of Christ in our place. When the Galatians think, how is it that we were saved? Here's the answer. Christ crucified. I trusted in Jesus' death to pay for my sins. Paul goes on from there to ask more questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's great sealing gift, his confirming sign to his people. Through the Spirit, God indwells them. God enables them then to obey him, to, to persist and persevere in faith. So Paul asks, how was it that you received the Holy Spirit? When we read about the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, we see that when the gospel is first spread to a new place or a new region, the preaching of the gospel and its reception is often accompanied by miraculous signs. 
When a people receive the gospel in the book of Acts, the book of Acts will say that the Holy Spirit came upon them or fell on them. And it seemed to do so in such a way that the people who were there could perceive it. The preacher could tell the Spirit had come upon them. Just as one example, listen to Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. This is when Peter is preaching in the house of Cornelius, where God had divinely revealed that he should go. And this, he was, Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. So it says, while Peter was still saying these things, while he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So they, they see the Spirit come. In this case, it appears the, the believers spoke with tongues. They were given this miraculous gift that signified that the Spirit had fallen upon them, had been poured out upon them. And everyone who was there, the believers who had accompanied Peter and were witnessing this thing happen, they could see it. They were amazed that the gospel, uh, through receiving the gospel, these Gentile believers had received the Holy Spirit. Based upon what Paul is saying here in Galatians, it seems like something similar must have happened when Paul preached in Galatia. There was no doubt that the Galatians had received the Spirit. Paul says that God had worked miracles among them in verse 5. These signs and wonders would have given credibility to the message Paul preached but even more so, they were an objective fact that he could point to now, later, and say, remember what that was like? You know, what was going on when that happened? How did it come about that God poured out his spirit upon you? Was it because all of you had gone and gotten circumcised? Or all of you had started eating kosher and then the spirit came? No, Paul would say, of course that's not how it happened. I was preaching Christ crucified to you, and you believed you had hearing with faith. That's how the Spirit came. Paul emphasizes twice in this passage that the gifts of God come by hearing with faith. They heard the message and they believed. They heard the message of Christ crucified and believed. That's how God's miraculous salvation came to the Gentiles in Galatia. These were facts beyond dispute. Paul doesn't have to prove anything to them. He just has to tell them, remember what it was like. Having reminded them of, of these facts, he can now build on these things, saying, if that's how you began, then what are you doing now? Are you going to finish the project that God so miraculously started by relying on yourself? Will you get yourself home to heaven under your own power? Will your good works be the thing that pushes you across the finish line with God? Notice the contrast in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The flesh here is paralleled with the works of the law in verses 2 and 5. It refers to our own human abilities. So in essence, Paul is saying, were you saved by your flesh, by your own power? Were you able to gain forgiveness and eternal life by your law-keeping or your, your efforts at improving yourself? And again, the answer should be obvious. Of course not. 
when the gospel was preached to us, we cannot say that we all saw miraculous signs and wonders like the Acts, uh, the Cornelius did in Acts or the Galatians did. So we might shrug off this argument from Paul. Saying, we'll, we can't point to a miracle, but we shouldn't be quick to do that. If we can remember to back to when we were saved, when we first came to faith, and Paul's argument may still help us. Just think back. Was it your own efforts that saved you? You know, Were you so zealous to have the gospel preached to you that you went out and sought somebody? Was it that you cleaned up your life and God approved of you? Did you pay for your own sins? Did you start obeying the Ten Commandments? And that's how you got into God's good graces. I hope that we can all say, well, of course that's not how it happened. It was when someone preached the gospel, the good news. I was convinced that I was under judgment. And I believe that Christ, his atoning work, saved me. If you do believe it was your own goodness that saved you, then you're tragically wrong. And we'd love to talk with you to help you better understand. All true Christians can attest that we were saved because of God's gracious work in our hearts. God opened our eyes. He showed us how we were sinful. He showed us that Jesus was the only way. He humbled us and gave us faith to believe. It was God's grace. It was a miracle of God's grace that gave us true spiritual life. And it was the gospel of Christ crucified that we believed and saved us. And so Paul's plea to us is the same as it was to those Galatians. Don't be so foolish to abandon what saved you. If you were saved by faith in the gospel, keep going by faith. We might ask, well, how, how does anyone abandon the gospel? Again, we, can, we could point to maybe a series of things where it kind of makes sense. Maybe I, I see a, an area of improvement needed in my life. And it might, might be rightly so. Maybe you do need to, to love your children or spouse better. You see a place where you're convicted of sin. But instead of going to Christ and confessing that and, and seeking help to obey, you start to say, well, what I need is maybe some, some rules. I'm going to make some, some rules for myself. You know? and, and these will be the thing that sets me on the path. And slowly but surely, you find yourself more, more allied to your rules than you do to Christ. You're no longer bringing your sin to Christ and confessing it. You're just trying to do better at keeping your rules. You may have identified a real problem, but you're not going to Christ, the solution. You're not living by faith. You're living by the law, by, by works. And so as you think about your life, do not think that you can clean yourself up or that you can obey your way back into God's good graces, that you can read your Bible enough days in a row for him to be pleased with you. Don't imagine that it will be your own effort that completes your salvation. That's not how you began. That's not how you continue. Paul emphasizes, again, the importance of hearing with faith. It's by believing the word of the gospel that we became Christians. That's how we began the Christian life. And that's how we continue the Christian life. So that's why we Christians need to hear the gospel. Hopefully that's a familiar refrain that you hear a lot here. The gospel is for Christians too. Every day, you and I need to hear the good news that our sins have been paid for by Jesus. 
We need to hear that we're children of God by faith in Jesus. Realize that's why we can pray. So to pray, if you pray regularly, and you pray, Father in heaven, you can only pray that by the gospel. We need the gospel to pray. We can't pray without it. It's one of the reasons we pray in Jesus' name, amen, right? That's not a magical incantation, but it's a reminder. We come to God through the gospel. We also need to hear every day the promise from Jesus. He will never leave us or forsake us. We need to know that he began a good work in us and he will complete it. These are gospel promises and gospel realities. The message of the gospel tells us that right now, our crucified Savior is alive and sitting in heaven, and he prays for us all the time. Amen. That's the gospel. When you think about your, your daily quiet time or your daily devotions, we should want to be, make that a gospel time. That should be a time where we preach the gospel to ourselves by reading the word of God. So it may be that one way to grow as a, a gospel preacher to yourself is to grow as an, under, uh, an interpreter and reader of the Bible. Now, the pastor Tim has been reading a book with a friend about, called God's Big Picture about how to see the whole story of the Bible and how it points to Christ. A book like that may help you to better preach the gospel to yourself so that wherever you are reading in the Bible, you can see how it points to Jesus and how you are called today to faith in Christ. We live the Christian life the way we began the Christian life by hearing with faith. This is one of the reasons why we need the church. We need each other to preach the gospel to us, to point us to Christ. We need to hear the gospel and believe it. So the spirit-filled life, according to the Apostle Paul, is the gospel-filled life. It's the life we hear, live by hearing with faith. There's another implication here for us. If the gospel is the way that people are saved, that they're saved by hearing with faith, then we should never stop preaching the gospel. I just said we should preach it to each other in the church, but obviously we need to preach it to our friends and neighbors. There are people today who still need to hear it. And so you need to imagine that God has put you where he's put you, with your children and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates, because there are people in those groups who need to hear the gospel. He intends for you to be the one who shares the gospel with them. By hearing and believing the message of Christ crucified, the Galatians were saved, and we were saved. And there are people today in your life who need to hear and believe that message. And so Paul begins by asking, how did God save you? It was by faith in the gospel. And so don't abandon the good news that saved you. Paul con concludes his barrage of questions in verses 1 through 5 with maybe a strange allusion in verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God, then it was counted to him as righteousness. Believers are justified and receive the Spirit in the same way that Abraham was justified. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15, 6. In a way, Paul is concluding all these rhetorical questions by saying, look at Abraham. Look at Abraham. He's the paradigm and model of one who is saved. And he was saved by his faith. 
So who are the true members of Abraham's family and of God's family? Who has access to the blessings of God? Is it those who do the works of the law? Well, this is our second point. What defines God's family? And Paul is clear. The answer is faith. This is a clever appeal by Paul, appealing to Abraham as the model, because appealing to Abraham is what Jews did in their evangelism. The Jews of Paul's day would have said, look at Abraham. Only those who can claim connection to the family of Abraham can be right with God. But when, when the Jews appealed to Abraham's story, what they put front and center was not Abraham's faith, but his obedience to God's law. They would say, look at Abraham, look what he did. Centuries before the law was even written down, Abraham was a lawkeeper. He was circumcising his sons. So their argument was that if you want to be a true son of Abraham, you really want to join in on what God is doing, be right with God, then obey the law like Abraham did. Now, interestingly, Paul makes a very similar argument. Look to Abraham, he says, but there's a crucial difference, a crucial thing that the Jewish evangelists get wrong about Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's law-keeping that justified him. The scriptures tell us what it was that justified him. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And further, the scriptures proclaim, Paul says, that the Gentiles would be blessed in him. We see this in, in our passage where it says, in you all the nations will be blessed in verse 8. That word nations is the same word that everywhere else in, in Galatians is translated Gentiles. The Gentiles would be blessed through Abraham. They would be blessed as they came to share Abraham's faith. Verse 7 says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The family of God is defined by faith. Those who believe the gospel are those who are the true descendants of Abraham. They are inheritors of the blessing of Abraham. Now, what is the blessing of Abraham? If you read Genesis 12, you might think, well, is it, is it the land? You know, is it, is it Canaan or is it having a lot of children? He was going to be a father of many nations. What do all those who are blessed with Abraham receive? Well, verse 8 says that part of what was revealed even to Abraham was that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The chief blessing that Paul has in mind when he speaks of the blessings of Abraham, at least in Galatians 3, the chief blessing is justification by faith, that you be forgiven of your sins and declared righteous before God. This is the blessing of Abraham that we receive by faith. Now, this should have made everything clear for Paul's Galatian readers. Paul is essentially saying the problem that separates people from God is not a lack of Jewish blood in their veins. The problem that separates people from God is not their failure to conform to certain Old Testament rituals. Rather, he points his finger at sin as the problem. We're unrighteous before God. Sin condemns Jews and Gentiles alike. He said again in chapter 2 to his Jewish you know, interlocutors, we all know that no one is justified by, by works of the law. Sin condemns all alike. To be included in God's family, you have to have your sin problem dealt with. You need forgiveness. You need righteousness. 
And this is not achieved by our own efforts. Justification is by faith in Christ. We become children of God when we believe in the gospel just as Abraham did. Now, again, the Galatians were being told by their, their agitators, these teachers that were troubling them, that the only way they could join God's family was converting to some Christianized form of Judaism. They needed to be circumcised and keep the law. But Paul is saying, no, that message that you're hearing from these troublers, it's rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture. Their message gets Abraham all wrong. The only way to become a child of God is by faith. We can't miss the fact that Paul says that the Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham in verse 8. So the way Abraham was accepted by God is the same way that we are today. He believed the gospel. What all is meant by that, we can't know. What all did, would Paul know about the gospel? But in Paul's mind, the Scripture preached the gospel to him, and Abraham believed it. The people of God are defined by faith. This is a big reason why we are a Baptist church. That word Baptist you know, puts the emphasis on baptism, the act of you know, being immersed in water. But hidden within that is the assumption that baptism is only for believers. So maybe more accurate of all Baptist churches are called believers Baptist churches. That would be too cumbersome to say. So baptism is only for believers, which is also another way to say that membership in God's family is for those of faith. Only those who are justified by faith are true children of God and true sons of Abraham and true members of God's household. I heard it put this way on a podcast this week. There are no legacy admissions to the family of God. Or you may have heard it said, God has no grandchildren. Membership in God's family is not passed down by natural birth. It comes by faith in the gospel. So when we admit new members... We seek to do so with care because of this reason. We want to examine, does this person confess the true gospel? Are they trusting only in Christ crucified for their salvation? And does their life match up with that confession? Are they trying to deliberately live their life by faith in Christ and in submission to their Savior? We don't do this because we just have a love for being pure and rigid with our theology and our practice. Our goal is not just to make sure that we've dotted all our I's and crossed our T's. Our goal is to love people with the gospel. We want to make it clear that salvation comes by faith. This thing that Paul says is so important, we want to make that clear within what we say and how we acknowledge who is a Christian, who's a church member. Another way to put it is we don't want to play a part in deceiving anybody by encouraging them to believe that they are right with God because they have Christian parents, or that they're right with God because they're really trying to be a good person. We don't want to be a part of propagating false gospels because we love people. We want the true gospel to be clear. We want the true gospel that sinners can be justified by faith in Jesus to be what we proclaim. We want to glorify God by our faith in Jesus Christ. God's family is defined by faith. Having established then that faith defines God's family, Paul now turns to his demolition work. 
in verses 10 through 15, he dismantles the idea that people, the people of God can be defined by our good works or our obedience to the law. And so he does this by answering the question, how did you escape God's judgment? It's clear. We didn't escape it through our good works. As we look at this question, remember that verses 7 through 9, uh, Paul says that the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. Well, now he's going to use the scriptures to clarify what is and is not the gospel. In verses 10 through 14, we get four quotations from various Old Testament books. The first quote is from Deuteronomy, which Lucas read for us earlier. That's why I had him start at the very end of a chapter, was to get this quote in. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He substantiates that claim with this quote from Deuteronomy. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law requires perfect obedience. Anyone who doesn't do all of it, if you leave one part undone, you're under a curse. Anything short of perfect obedience brings God's curse. Now, a curse is not something like, you know, you're going to be covered with painful blisters from head to toe. That's not the kind of curse God has in mind. The curse is damnation. It's righteous condemnation. For Old Testament Israel, it was the exile from the land, which symbolized exile from God's salvation. God's curse is hell, eternal judgment from God. Paul says that if you rely on works of the law, you are under a curse. Notice that word rely. What brings God's judgment is placing your hope for salvation in your ability to obey. So the first premise in Paul's argument here is that eternal spiritual death will be the result of placing your faith in yourself. If you place your faith in yourself, you're under God's judgment. In verse 11 we get a bit of a detour from the main line of the argument, but it's an important detour. Paul reminds us again that justification comes by faith. And to prove this, he cites Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. This is an important detail, detour because Paul can bring in this crucial element, the element of life. We've seen what brings death. Relying on the law brings death. And now we see that faith brings life. Faith both leads to eternal life and it also marks the way that a Christian lives. Old Testament Israel was to endure by faith in God's promises and the same is true for us. So we see life as a blessing of faith and faith as the manner of the life we live. We live by faith in the Son of God, he said last week. By contrast, Paul says that the law's system, in that system, spiritual life is based on doing. And so he quotes from Leviticus in verse 12, the one who does them shall live by them, the them being the works of the law. So to have life according to the principle of the law requires doing it and doing all of it. And Paul's already established we are, we, it requires this perfect obedience to the whole law. So if you fail to keep any part of it, 
you don't receive life. If you fail to keep just one law, you don't receive life. You're under a curse. If one wants eternal life by the law, then you must practice perfect obedience to the law. When Paul says the law is not a faith, he's setting up then a a fundamental contrast. Faith is all about receiving what God has done through Christ. Faith is accepting the gift of the gospel. Faith trusts in God for salvation. The law is not a faith. The law requires us to trust in ourselves. It requires us to depend on our own power to obey. The law depends on our own perfection in order to find life. So this is why faith leads to life, but the law leads to a curse. After verse 12, there's a step that's implied but not explicitly stated. And that step is the reality that by nature, we're all under God's curse. Ephesians 2 makes this plain when Paul says that we're all children of wrath. Jews have explicitly rebelled and failed to keep the law of Moses. And Gentiles are also guilty. We have suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness. We've all inherited Adam's sin nature. We've all committed sins against God. We've rebelled against him as our maker and ruler. And so the plight of all people is that we're guilty of sin and under God's curse. We all stand condemned in God's courtroom. God would be right to send us all to hell for all eternity. But this bad news about ourselves makes what Paul says in verses 13 and 14 all the more sweet. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us. We were owned by sin and death, but Christ freed us. He freed us by becoming a curse for us, according to the law. The law condemned as cursed anyone who hung on a tree, and Christ died on the cross for our sin. Christ didn't deserve to be there. He was the only person who ever lived who could legitimately claim, I did the law. I did it completely. Christ could say, I have a right to life based on works of the law. I am justified by my works. Only Jesus could say that. But Jesus was condemned as if he had broken every law. He was taken outside the city into the wilderness of exile and nailed to the cross. He didn't do this simply to set an example of what love is. That's what some Christians who no longer believe the gospel would say. Jesus is just a good example of love that we can follow. Jesus did this in our place. He became a curse for us. We should have been there, cursed on the tree, and he went there in our place. He's our substitute. We deserved it. He took it. He died in our place. The folks who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism also wrote a book of church order in which they um, wrote a Lord's Supper service. And in the midst of that service, they say this, 
Christ was tied up so that he might untie us. Christ suffered immense disgrace so that we might never be put to shame. The innocent one was sentenced to death that we might be acquitted before the judgment of God. He bore our malediction, our curse, so that he might fill us with his benediction, his blessing. On the cross, he humbled himself to the deepest humiliation of hellish anguish of body and soul when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might be brought to God and never be forsaken by him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. For sinful people, the law leads only to judgment, to hell. But Christ saved us if we believe in him. This is the good news of the gospel. By faith in this message, Paul says the blessing of Abraham comes to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. We can all be justified. We can all be filled with God's spirit by faith in this good news. We can live. We can escape the judgment by faith in this good news. Brothers and sisters, this is what enables us to go on day after day in a world that's often filled with sorrow. Our hope is built on this unshakable foundation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved us and gave himself for us. He took the curse. Our greatest problem has been solved. By faith we live with God. Our temptation is to judge our lives by the latest bad news or whatever happens to be the most painful thing we're going through right now. Whatever that is, we look at our life and think, well, there must be some sin or failure. Something's going wrong. I want you to know the gospel doesn't erase those pains or tell you just to ignore them. Jesus acknowledges our sorrow. He knows that we are burdened with grief. He knows that we're worried about things. And we all have our worries. Our jobs, the start of a new school year, difficult relationships, how our kids are doing. We have regrets about ways we've hurt others. Jesus knows all those things And he doesn't say those things don't matter. But he does say, I have taken the curse you deserve. I have given you life with God. My Father and I have sent the Spirit to indwell you. So we can go on living in whatever sorrow we experience, knowing that we are loved by God in the most profound way. Our sin has been paid for. We are justified. We have access to the presence of God, and God's Spirit indwells us. We have hope because our past sins are paid for, and we have hope right now because the Spirit lives within us. We can love our difficult spouse or child, and because we're covered in Christ's blood, we can seek forgiveness for those we've sinned against. God's Spirit enables us to love and to have peace, to have patience and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. God's, God's gospel gives us hope for the future, that we will stand before God righteous on the last day. So Christ calls us to walk each day in this same faith, 
This is how we began, and this is how we go on, bearing with whatever he brings into our lives. We can bear with it because the one who died for us is in charge of our lives. Christ, who became a curse for us, is with us in the losses and in the joys of this life. Ask yourself, did Christ die for me way back in Jerusalem on Calvary only to abandon me now? Was that his grand plan? No. He promises he is always with you. And so we come back to the big question. If you began by faith in Christ, are you going to abandon him now? Are we so foolish? Have some great witchcraft charmed us to convince us that there's some other way to life? There's no other way. There's only one gospel that saves. There's only one way to life. It's the message of Christ crucified, the sinless Son of God who became a curse for sinners. Only by faith in Christ do we become children of God. Only by faith in the Good Shepherd can we endure to the end. Don't be foolish. Don't abandon the good news that saved you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to meditate on this good news. And we pray that you would preserve us, that you would help us hold fast to Christ to the end. Give us a sensitivity to when we are drifting away, when we're allowing something else to steal the center of our attention and our affection. Help us to be quick to see it and to repent of it, Give us loving brothers and sisters who might see it and make us aware. Give us grace to receive correction and encouragement. We pray, Father, that we would be a community of faith that magnifies the gospel. We don't want to in any way confuse it or mislead anyone. So we pray that you would help us in every way to bring glory to Jesus, the Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.